0: Hey Jay,
1: is Mirage still a Valkyrie?
0: Not at the moment, at least that I know of.
1: Is that the kind of job you can really quit? It's more the kind you can lose. Because of M Day? I know she lost her mutant powers, but I thought the Valkyrie thing was unconnected.
0: It was. She lost her connection
1: to Asgard when it fell. Okay, that makes sense. But wait a minute, wasn't she a Valkyrie during Dark Reign? I remember that being a pretty specific plot point.
0: Well, yeah, but she had Valkyrie powers at that point, because Cyclops had sent her to make a deal with Hela to get those powers temporarily.
1: With Hela? They were pretty desperate. Desperate enough to send Danny to hell, apparently. Well, to Vegas. So she's a Valkyrie of Hela. How's that even work? It's less a continual
0: identity than an on-again-off-again gig. She's really only had to perform a couple times, mostly in connection with the Desir. The Desir? Uh, Valkyries of bor that's Odin's dad, cursed after eating the flesh of gods.
1: So, like Asgardian Wendigos. Not-
0: well, you know, actually, yeah, kinda. Anyway, the Desir had been locked away, but they were raised again by the deaths of gods in New Asgard, since part of their curse was that they could only eat the shades of gods exiled from their true homes. So, you know, dinner bell.
1: Wait, how's that work? I thought you said the gods were in Asgard.
0: New Asgard.
1: What happened to old Asgard.
0: Whatever happens to old Asgard. Ragnarok.
1: Oh, yeah, okay, fair point. So, what, they rebuilt?
0: Yeah, Thor bought some land out in Oklahoma, and they started over.
1: So Asgard is in Oklahoma?
0: Well, not anymore. Also, it's Asgardia these days.
1: Is it back in, you know, Asgard?
0: Nah, it's still sort of in Midgard. Sort of? Orbiting Saturn. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 127 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
1: So we are back from our summer special, back from our live episode of Rose City, and we are back for like an actual normal episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men.
0: I think that between the number of sort of special event things that have happened this summer... Our travel schedule, Kyle's travel schedule, and various emergencies, this is the first time since June that we have recorded in the studio at our normal slot.
1: I think it is, and it's also the last time for a few weeks because, you know, more travel. But we are going to keep up our usual schedule of releasing episodes, even if we record them in strange configurations at strange times.
0: In the middle of the night, when you least expect it. We meet in the middle of a park, wearing trench coats and fedoras and hidden behind newspapers. And record in whispers. Kyle is just that good a producer.
1: Now I'm just imagining us as, like, the sort of government agent people from the Milkman Conspiracy and Psychonauts. I am a grieving widow. I am your sister in grief.
0: What would the prop be? Would it be headphones or a mic?
1: Uh, I think it would just be a big stack of X-Men comics for us.
0: No, no, no. Because you need a really superficial prop if you're going to be a Milkman Conspiracy secret agent.
1: Okay, well, let's go for headphones and we could, you know, like, wear them wrong and, Mm. you know, try to eat them or swing them around or whatever.
0: And we'd need really sort of superficial, not quite right quotes. I am checking my levels.
1: I am a podcaster. This is my pod. So, okay, we are back, like we were saying, to normal stuff. And so normal stuff in this case means New Mutants.
0: Normal by some definitions.
1: Because the New Mutants are starting this gigantic thing, the Asgardian Adventure, it's often called, which is actually happening around the same time that Excalibur is doing the Cross Time Caper, and X-Factor is doing the Judgment War out in space.
0: I was mostly thinking because, you know, they're teen superheroes with powers inexplicable by science in a shared universe line, but... That well, too.
1: Okay, well, yes, yes, that as well. But yeah, it's a weird part of history because in Uncanny X-Men, we have basically the full dissolution of the team and just a bunch of plot lines going on at different parts around the world following different characters.
0: X-Factor has a new level of cohesion, but they don't have a base anymore. They've just spent a while in the UK and they're about to get slingshotted into space for a long arc.
1: Yeah, the New Mutants are going to be in Asgard for a long time. Excalibur is going to be going across alternate dimensions for a very long time. So it is a weird time to be an X-Reader right now here at the end of 1989.
0: Yeah, no one is at home right now, are they?
1: Uh, pretty much, yeah.
0: So speaking of Asgard, this is actually the second time the New Mutants have been there. The first time was way back in 1985 in New Mutants Special Edition and X-Men Annual number 9.
1: All of the New Mutants got pulled into Asgard in the first of those stories, and they each sort of did their own thing. They got separated. So in the dwarf realm of Nidavellir, I don't know how to actually pronounce these things, I've just read them a lot, but you know, that place. Cannonball ended up befriending Eitri, the master forger of the dwarves, and his daughter, Princess Kindra.
0: In Asgard, Sunspot met up with the Warriors Three and pressed an Asgardian tavern by beating up some douchebags. He is in his element in Asgard. He gets to punch people and then eat.
1: And be a hero. And
0: get hit on by ladies.
1: Yup. Wolfsbane ended up being rescued from giants by this silver wolf prince guy named Hrimhari who she totally fell for and also was really reluctant to leave at the end of the story. And they'll eventually have a kid. The kings of hell will try to kill the kid. It gets and really, succeed. They will, sort of. And it gets really complicated. But, you know, that's a story for another time.
0: We did a cold open about it once. Warlock ended up in hell,
1: speaking of hell. That's hell with one L, by the way, which is to say the Norse realm of the dead, not like Mephisto's fireplace where, you know, Satan is also supposed to be.
0: Although hell with one L is actually in a corner of that hell now.
1: It's complicated. Uh,
0: Loki negotiated for space for it after proper hell got destroyed. So anyway, Morlock ended up in hell with 1L and he briefly, I think that was technically the first appearance of Longshot or was Longshot's miniseries already out at that point? It was around the same
1: time, but he disguised himself as Longshot. It was a weird in-joke. Art Adams loves doing artistic in-jokes. And perhaps most importantly, Mirage found a Pegasus who was trapped... And ended up saving it from some people who were going to kill it, and thus accidentally became a Valkyrie, because this was one of the horses of the Valkyrie, the Norse choosers of the dead, these sort of divine women who find valiant warriors who have fallen on the battlefield and bring them to the realm of Valhalla, where they will then join Odin's army of the dead for Ragnarok, the last battle. Norse mythology, by the way, is the best mythology, it's so metal, I love it.
0: It's so metal because a lot of metal is Norse mythology derived. If they'd just gone for a different set of traditions, it would be another mythos that was so metal.
1: Uh, You know, art imitates life, imitates art, whatever.
0: Now... In the midst of all of this, Magma and Cipher and Karma and Magic were all off doing other stuff, but that is largely irrelevant because right now Magma and Karma are off somewhere else and Cipher and Magic are respectively dead and for all practical purposes dead.
1: Now, if you want a full take on the thing we just briefly described, our episode Guitar Solos of the Gods covers that in detail and is actually one of my favorite episodes we've ever done.
0: And we will link to that in the visual companion to this episode, which you can find at explainthexmen.com.
1: Yes, now other background stuff that will be useful for what we're about to talk about. So Hela, the goddess of the dead, she's really pissed off and she's very weakened because this guy named Scourge the Executioner in The Mighty Thor destroyed the Nagelfar. That was in Thor number 362.
0: Otherwise known as the best single issue of all time.
1: It really is. Uh, everyone talks about the Bridge of Gallobrew. That's the issue that's from. It's freaking phenomenal.
0: It's amazing and it's beautiful. And if you ever get the chance to see it in the big oversized artist edition, do it because it is Spectacular! So quickly, the Nagelfar, which Miles mentioned, is a ship made out of, I think, the fingernails of the dead.
1: Uh, I think fingernails and toenails.
0: I'm not sure if that's better or not. Eh.
1: But yeah, this is actually why, uh, religiously speaking at least, the Norse folks trimmed the uh, nails of bodies before funerals. When people died, it was so that the building of the Nagelfar would be slowed because when the Nagelfar is complete, it will come unmoored from its docks in darkest hell and be one of the things that ushers in the last days Ragnarok the twilight of the gods and so like you know if you don't trim your dead grandpa's nails then the end of the world will happen sooner basically
0: also don't masturbate with cacti really you can learn from a large number of mythic and spiritual traditions
1: you can full
0: of good advice
1: so anyway hell is not pleased now the other big thing going on in Asgard after the Walt Simonson run I believe it was Tom DeFalco writing at this point is that a nihilist, the cosmic being is fighting Asgard and the negative zone is sort of intersecting with with Asgard, and it's pretty weird, not too relevant, except to know that all the big heroes in Asgard, Thor and Odin and all those, are, you know, otherwise occupied.
0: Well, Odin is asleep. Odin's in the midst of the Odin sleep right now.
1: Yes, that too, but Thor's so off he's, doing he's, stuff.
0: Odin is out of the game for all practical purposes. So let's return to Midgard and take a look at the current lineup of the New Mutants. We talked about their previous adventures of Asgard, but the team lineup has shifted significantly since that point.
1: Right. So at this point, the team consists of the veterans Mirage, Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Warlock. But we also have Rusty Collins, also occasionally known as Firefist. Although
0: we will never call him that on purpose.
1: And then Skids, Boom Boom, and Richter. Those kids came over from being wards of X-Factor. They're now members of the New Mutants. So we're actually back up to nine characters, which is sort of the most common and largest lineup of New Mutants we tend to have.
0: And Simonson is going to deal with that the way she and Claremont before her mostly did before, which is by leaving a couple of them behind and then splitting the party for the bulk of this arc. We should also say that we're not going to be covering the Asgardian adventure in its entirety in this episode. It's basically two episodes worth of content. So yeah, this arc is going to be split across two episodes, both of which are also part of the aftermath of Inferno because everything is forever.
1: I mean, when you get down to it, everything since Inferno is part of the aftermath of Inferno. All of our lives, well, okay, most of our lives, because Inferno is while we were already born, uh, are Inferno aftermath.
0: Maybe this could be a different way to name generations. I think we're technically Brood Saga generation, so you could have Brood Saga generation, Inferno generation, and so forth.
1: You could also change the way you do years. So, for instance, instead of BC and AD, you could have BI and AI. It'd be great. Let's start
0: doing that. Let's just start giving comics dates in those
1: terms. (laughs) Perfect. We'll see if we can get Marvel Wikia to change every single page.
0: Marvel, hell, let's just see if we can get the modern world to switch. I mean, if they could make it from the Julian to the Gregorian calendars, they can handle this one. Yeah, easy enough.
1: So, anyway, we're going to be talking about New Mutants number 77 through 80 this time around, so I guess let's... Jump on in!
0: All right, so New Mutants number seventy-seven. We've got a guest art team: pencils by Rich Buckler and inks by Roy Richardson, who both do a perfectly serviceable, if fairly unremarkable job.
1: Yeah, the inks are actually kind of interesting. Like, there's a whole lot of black and a whole lot of shadow. Like, it almost feels a little mignola y
0: Maybe a little bit. There's also a lot of you know people with fire reflected in their eyes and around their faces, which they handle nicely. But before any of that happens, we start off somewhere that we haven't seen in a very long time. That is the Ust Ordinsky Collective.
1: Ustordinsky is a rural locality in the administrative center of Ekerit Bulagatsky district. Of Ust-Orda Buryat Okrug in Irkutsk Oblast, Russia, as well as the administrative center of Ust-Orda Buryat Okrug. It is located on the right bank of the Kuda River, sixty-two kilometers northeast of Irkutsk. Population is fourteen thousand eight hundred ninety-one, according to twenty ten. Thanks, Wikipedia. Now you too know where Colossus comes from.
0: Yeah, that's really the only relevant part. Also, the population has probably changed somewhat, you know, in the years since nineteen eighty-nine.
1: It probably has, but the other relevant part is that this collective is also populated, in addition to with Russian people, by. Evil, malevolent tractors that you have to punch or else they'll run your sister over.
0: That's kind of true of tractors in general.
1: Tractors are totally jerks, and I am morally opposed to them. Tractors and horses. What's really worse is when a horse is riding a tractor. I don't even know why they would. It's just pure evil.
0: Does evil really need a reason?
1: (laughs) It's just evil itself. Evil is its own reward. Its own equine tractory reward. So, I mean, anyway. that's
0: basically the premise of the movie Legend, right? Uh,
1: yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Horses on tractors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Tom Cruise with no pants. So, yes. See, you
0: never want to fight a tractor horse without pants. Come on. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell even, Tom Cruise? Fuck you.
1: So, the reason the New Mutants are at ustordinski is Get some because damn pants. they are returning Ilyana Rasputin to her parents. This is where Colossus and Magic are from, and now that Ilyana's been regressed to a little girl, now that she's not a, you know, teenage dark sorceress they figure this is probably the best and safest place for her.
0: Yeah, that worked out so well last time.
1: Regardless, their motivations are pretty reasonable, and this is the last we're going to see of Illyana for quite a while, especially in any kind of a focal role.
0: As they are leaving, however, Danny suddenly has a death vision. She's been having these since she became a Valkyrie, and they've grown pretty much useless since Inferno because the new mutants are continually in a state of mortal peril, and so it's just like, oh, another death vision, and it's 72 degrees and sunny.
1: That's Maggie again, Grandpa. But uh, actually, the impression I've always gotten is that Inferno basically corrupted her death visions so that they're not really related to any sort of actual peril. It's just that she's continually aware of the presence of death no matter what's going on. And as we'll learn, it's getting more severe right now because of the machinations of Hela, the Norse goddess of death.
0: So what you're saying is that Inferno turned her from a Valkyrie into a goth?
1: Uh, Basically, yeah. Yeah, she just can't stop thinking about death. So she basically collapses... And Brightwind, her Asgardian Pegasus that she's been riding around and that helped them get to ust collapses as well. Things are not so hot. Yeah. See, this is why horses are terrible. So the new mutants are like, crap, this isn't good. We've dropped Eiffeliana, but now Mirage is super screwed up. We should probably get back to where we've been living, the celestial ship, Ship, and X-Factor because they're grownups and maybe they'll know what to do.
0: So they head back to ship and while they're on their way, they do some quick recapping for Skids and Boom Boom and Richter and Rusty who weren't along for the first stage of Asgardian adventures and so have no idea why the hell Danielle has a giant winged horse and didn't think to ask while they were in the middle of rescuing babies a few issues ago.
1: And Richter's like, Jeez, and I thought figuring out Illyana's powers was hard.
0: Well, Richter, new episodes of J.N. Miles' Explain the X-Men go up every Sunday on explainthexmen.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. And remember, every episode comes with its very own visual companion at explainthexmen.com. Check out Guitar Solos of the Gods for more on Danny's Valkyrie powers.
1: So they end up getting to Ship, and Ship uses its Shipley technology to analyze Mirage's illness to see what's wrong with her, and concludes pretty quickly that the illness is mystical. This is a magical problem, and therefore one it really can't treat.
0: And so Ship sends them to Doctor Strange, and Warlock disguises himself as a helicopter. He's basically become their default mode of transportation, and they all head off. They get to Doctor Strange's headquarters, and they decide that Cannonball Rusty and Skids are the only remotely respectable looking of the bunch of them. So they're the ones who should knock on the door.
1: And uh, yeah, they're talking about how it's important to be humble, and Boom Boom can't really wrap her brain around this.
0: Humbly? This is the 20th century for Pete's sake?
1: So the three respectable kids knock. Wong, Doctor Strange's assistant, answers the door and says, Doctor Strange is dead.
0: Spoiler, Doctor Strange is totally not dead. He's just lurking on the balcony just behind the door. Like, he's right there. What the hell even, Doctor Strange? He's also randomly wearing an eye patch, which we find out for sure that
1: he doesn't need. It's complicated. There's some stuff going on in his own book, but it's not terribly relevant, so we won't worry too much about it.
0: There's stuff going on. The Doctor Strange story.
1: Now, Boom Boom doesn't believe this for even a minute, so she just throws in a time bomb because that is her response to pretty much any stimulus, as near as I can tell. She's
0: like our friend's old cat who used to bite to express everything. Like, she'd be really happy, and she'd bite while purring, and she'd be angry and want something else, and she'd bite, and she was a terrible cat.
1: (laughs) Terrible, but lovable.
0: Terrible. So terrible. Oh, my God.
1: Now, Doctor Strange does snuff out this time bomb using, you know, time bomb stuffing magic, but he's going to be watching what's going on for like the next couple of issues just from the background. Well,
0: not from the background, uh, hovering on the astral plane, following them around. And what happens most immediately is that Danny and Brightwind burst into flame and start attacking the other new mutants. I don't Oops. think anybody
1: was expecting that. Like, oh, our friend's having headaches. So now she's bursting into flame and talking in weird Asgardian Shakespearean. That's a weird freaking migraine.
0: Yeah, so Strange wants to know what's going on. He decides he's going to astrally project and check it out so he can investigate without the rest of the new mutants, recognizing that he's, you know, alive and just inside.
1: Man, the X-Men do this. Dr. Strange does this. Everyone's gaslighting the new mutants.
0: Well, he's taking a cue, presumably, from Professor X. So Dr. Strange, astrally projected, gets a special window, gets his strangeo vision onto what's going on. He sees not only Danny and her Valkyrie self superimposed, but also some sort of skeleton self that has possessed her. Which is sort of a weird symbol for that, because, you know, normally she has a skeleton inside her, too, so you'd think it would just be part of the usual lineup.
1: I think it's a Merjo from The House on Haunted Hill. In fact, I know it's a Merjo. I miss a Merjo, and he's come back to me finally in late 1989.
0: So what you're saying is that she's possessed by William Castle.
1: I mean, I hope so. I want to be possessed by William Castle. I'd be super dramatic and creepy and have Vincent Price hang out with me.
0: Well, Doctor Strange decides not to take advantage of that situation, which is a shame because Vincent Price is awesome, but... um He would have made
1: a good Doctor Strange.
0: Oh, he would have made such a good Doctor Strange.
1: Yeah. Hmm. A shame.
0: God. Man, I weep for a world that might have been. <laughs> In any case, Doctor Strange, who from here on I will be imagining as Vincent Price, and you should do the same, looks and sees, you know, Danny possessed by a malevolent entity that's using her body to set shit on fire and makes what is very clearly the worst possible decision under the circumstances namely to take Danny's mind and soul out of her body leaving it cheerfully in the hands of whatever entity has possessed it which they refer to as the entity by the way i like that we stay consistent that you know anything random and malevolent is just the entity
1: I mean, I get what he was going for. Like, she's clearly in a great deal of pain and distress, so he wanted to rescue her. He just didn't think it through, like, you know, at all. No,
0: that's like a reverse exorcism. It is the precise opposite of what would have been the functional response, which would have been to get rid of whatever was possessing her, leaving her in charge of her body. But no, he's like, well, if I just pull her out, then maybe something stuff. See, this is why. This is why you get stuck having to fake your own death, Doctor. Strange, because you are fucking incompetent.
1: Do you think his eye patch is an eye patch of bad judgment?
0: I mean, it probably fucks up his depth of perception.
1: Okay, well, there you go then. And so, yes, I mean, he talks to Danny astrally trying to get a feel for what's going on. But in the meantime, there is this gigantic fight because untethered by, you know, the will of a very noble, loyal person like Danielle Moonstar, this demonically possessed flame lady on its demonically possessed flame horse is trying to make everything a flame something by setting it on fire. But
0: does the demonically possessed flame horse have a demonically possessed flame tractor?
1: Oh, oh, right. Yeah, that would be way worse. Yeah, it
0: could still be worse.
1: An evil pegasus on a tractor?
0: I'm surprised that Doctor Strange doesn't next try to ameliorate the situation by manifesting one.
1: I'm pretty sure if Danny used her fear powers on one of us the way they used to be when she would manifest people's greatest fear or desire, it would just be a flaming pegasus on a tractor.
0: Unicorn, too. Unicorns are worse than pegasi.
1: Okay, a flaming pegacorn on a tractor. See,
0: unicorns, like, normal horses will freak out because of a gum wrapper and trample you, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Unicorns will do that, but they will also stab you and slut-shame you.
1: Oh, right, because of the whole virginity thing.
0: Unicorns are dicks.
1: Oh, stupid unicorns. What did they ever do for the world?
0: Not much, man. They reinforced a patriarchal uh, sex-negative status quo and trampled people.
1: If you want a really good creature with a big horn, you go for a narwhal. Narwhals are totally politically progressive and very tolerant and intelligent, and they have a great sense of humor.
0: They're way better than dolphins. Dolphins can go to hell.
1: That's right. Narwhals forever. Dolphins for never. That's the motto of this episode of Jane Miles Explain the X-Men and possibly the title. We'll see how I it goes. I apologize
0: about having gone off on this random rant against like mammals that I irrationally or rationally
1: hate. Hey, everybody's entitled to their opinion.
0: I've got a list.
1: <laughs> it's true. Is it like the, the death list five from Kill Bill? You're just going to murder like every horse in the world?
0: I'm not going to murder them. I'm just going to say mean things about well, them. Well, if you
1: were, you could get advice from Emma Frost. She's really good at murdering horses.
0: She is. She Well, no, she's overly elaborate. I, I don't have any problem with horses in a general overview overarching sense. I just think the fact that people talk about them like they're sweet little puppies is really creepy and horrifying because, again, they're like 30 feet tall and they will kick your head in. It's
1: covered in spines, like six rows of teeth. They radiate an aura of cold that does 1d4 damage per round. It's terrible.
0: Also, all the eyes.
1: Oh, geez. Like, so
0: many dozens. eyes. Anyway, and dolphins are just kind of douchey.
1: But we digress. The point is, there is a lady on a horse and they're on fire and they're fighting everything. And Doctor Strange realizes very quickly after Danny explains what's going on that he needs to undo what he just did. He needs to put her soul back into her body so she can sort of help keep this demon under control. Now,
0: she's briefly against this plan because, you know, she's on fire and it's not fun and it's not cool and she's not able to control the demon, really. But she finally accedes to it as the other new mutants continue to do their best to attempt to wrangle her flaming body and flaming giant winged horse. She pops back into her own head and manages for just a moment to get enough control to use her mutant power, which is conjuring what she wants most at the time, to conjure a freezing machine. Not like a giant freezer. It's some kind of little gadgety thing. It's not a
1: little, it's gigantic. It's okay, this, this impressively elaborate, like, Kirby monstrosity. It's wonderful.
0: You know, if only she knew someone whom she could just pop into existence who could maintain freezing temperatures for extended periods of time. I'm just spitballing here. Maybe some kind of, like, Frost Man or perhaps Iceman?
1: Man, that's so far-fetched. Nobody has powers like that. That's ridiculous. But regardless, Danny is now in a block of ice and, for the moment, contained. Now, Doctor Strange feels like he should probably do a little bit more here, but he doesn't want the new mutants to know he's alive, right? So so
0: he goes back to his body, changes into a suit because everyone knows Doctor Strange doesn't wear a suit and comes out looking like everyone's kind of generic dad and introduces himself as Dr. Stephen Sanders.
1: You mean Dr. Dad?
0: I mean Dr. Dad.
1: Okay, so Vincent Price as Dr. Dad as Dr. Strange in New Mutants number 77. No, no, it's
0: Vincent Price as Dr. Strange as Dr. Dad.
1: The order of these things is really confusing. No,
0: it's not. He's playing Dr. Strange who is playing Dr. Dad.
1: Do we have to get some, like, parentheses in here to make clear the order of operations?
0: With an eye patch.
1: Yes, perfect. Parentheses with an eye patch. And so Boom Boom isn't really fooled, but Wolfsbane totally is, and it's adorable.
0: Yeah, Rain is credulous.
1: Don't be daft, Boom Boom. His name is Sanders.
0: Rain, you're hopeless. (laughs) I love her so much. This is why your life is going to be terrible.
1: Now, in the meantime, from the depths of hell with one L itself, Hela, the goddess of death, watches.
0: By the shattered ship of nails, my revenge is just beginning.
1: I love Hela. She's such a wonderful, bombastic villain, and she's got the best hat in the entire Marvel Universe.
0: We will find out Hela's plan in New Mutants 78, where we get some slightly more thorough villain-splaining. As it turns out, Hela has made all of the Valkyries sick. She's already effectively corrupted them to put them in her thrall and prevent them from fetching warrior souls for Odin's Ragnarok army. And Danny, who's already on Earth, is to bring her additional souls.
1: And Odin doesn't really know what's up because, you know, there's other stuff going on. Odin Sleep, Negative Zone, Annihilus, all that sort of stuff.
0: Also, just for the record, the title of this issue is Let's Make a Deal. And I feel like there's probably a whole generation of people who is not familiar with the amazing, amazing show of the same title.
1: I would watch that when I was homesick, and that's the only time I would ever watch it. So for me, it's associated very strongly with feeling like crap.
0: Yeah, but my most distinct memory of it was that one time someone won two goats and a wagon full of cabbages. (laughs) It was an amazing game show. Like, that's television, man. A wagon <laughs> full of cabbages.
1: A bygone era, a more wonderful time.
0: It was awesome. I loved it because it was like part the serious risk-taking show. But then the prizes were just this like weird dadaistic nonsense. <laughs>
1: Speaking of things that are awesome, we have another fill in artist this issue, and it's Rickley and Artie. Hey, we love Rickley and Artie.
0: I think he's done enough New Mutants at this point that I don't know if he even really counts as a fill-in. He's part of the regular rotating lineup.
1: The way he draws Danny, especially, like, so she's inside this big block of ice under this big Kirby machine, right? And the way he draws her flesh just, like, receding and stretched over her skeleton and her face, like, tortured in this tormented agony, it's actually really vivid and really believable. Like, you can see the pain that Danielle's in.
0: We find out why she's in that state when Rain briefly tries to telepathically connect to her and discovers that while the ice is containing the external fires, they are now burning inward, basically eating away Danny's soul. Fortunately for the people around her, at least, you know, for the time being, she is still encased safely in the ice. And- A disproportionate amount of this issue is dedicated to, like, long, loving sequences of the New Mutants trying to figure out how to move, you know, ice in case
1: Danielle and Brightwind. Well, ice is very heavy, especially when you have a lot of it.
0: Again, if only they'd met someone whose powers extended to the manipulation of such objects.
1: I mean, to be fair, X-Factor is in England fighting trolls right now, as far as we know.
0: And likewise, if only they were not almost immediately set upon by Freedom Force.
1: So Freedom Force, as a reminder, is the government mutant organization who's mostly composed of members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, led by Mystique and the Murder Grandpas.
0: The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants were pretty much what it sounded like, a group of mutants who went around doing evil stuff, who briefly rebranded themselves, by the way, as the Brotherhood of Evil because they decided that mutants were a little too controversial, but evil would totally fly. The Murder Grandpas are three guys who were living in a state park and hunting humans for sport.
1: Now, Freedom Force has some experience with the New Mutants before, or specifically one member of the team that used to be a ward of X-Factor, Rusty Collins. In X-Factor number one, he inadvertently set a lady on fire and has been kind of on the lam ever since. Freedom Force has been sent to pick him up, I think, a couple times at this point. Once very recently.
0: Yeah, Rusty plot lines are basically someone shows up to arrest Rusty and everyone has feelings about it. He, I believe, most recently escaped during Inferno with the Exterminators.
1: And then uh, Freedom Force told him that the government had basically furloughed him and he was good to go.
0: But now that someone is running around New York setting things on fire, they have decided that his freedom is once again a problem and that it's probably his fault, despite the fact that the New Mutants have a perfectly logical explanation involving a possessed Valkyrie. And who wouldn't listen to that? And that they're going to come take him in again.
1: But to digress briefly... This kind of bugs me because Rusty Collins, I feel like he's a character that had a lot of potential and it was almost never used. He kind of reminds me of Magma or even Karma in that regard. Like the fact that he just has this one plot line that keeps coming back means he doesn't really have a chance to grow in any other directions. He's just. The guy whose whole moral conflict is defined by, should I stay in jail when I'm only semi-justly imprisoned, or should I be out of jail to do good things? And there's just not much more to him.
0: Maybe he and Magma should have gotten their own miniseries where they just burn shit down.
1: (laughs) Right, they're like, okay, screw this, we're tired of only having one personality trait, it's time for some arson. Then they would have two personality traits. Is arson a personality trait? Can that be like on the Myers-Briggs? I can be like an ENFP arson?
0: I, I guess it depends on how fundamental it is to you as an individual,
1: Hmm. I don't think it's very fundamental. Also, as I recall, I'm an ESFP. But whatever, that's not relevant. So yeah, Freedom Force shows up. I-, I wish Stonewall was here. I miss his mustache, but he's not. And they confront the new mutants. And like you said, the new mutants do try to explain and Freedom Force just doesn't want to hear any of it.
0: Freedom Force basically tells the new mutants, look, if the chicken the ice is your priority, take or have fun. We get fire, guy. This is not arguable. Have a nice day. Goodbye.
1: And of course, there's a big fight because there always is. And my favorite part of it is when Richter uses his vibration powers to try to stall Freedom Force to try to, like, you know, delay it so the New Mutants can escape. And Crimson Commando solves this problem by gently shooting Richter in the head to knock him out.
0: Yeah, Freedom Force in general deploys some deeply questionable tactics. They eventually effectively triumph. Rusty is knocked out. Skids is protecting him in her force field. They tell the rest of the New Mutants to take Danny and Brightwind and get the hell out of Dodge. And Freedom Force responds by basically just knocking out the rock shelf under them and carrying them off forced field and all. We also find out and the reason that they're so desperate in gung-ho to get their hands on Rusty is that they're planning for him to be pardoned and basically grandfathered into Freedom Force. They want him on the team. And they also allude to the fact that the government has big plans for the other mutants in their custody, specifically the mutant kids they picked up during Inferno.
1: Now, this is interesting because, of course, the mutant kids from Inferno will end up being a central part of a plot, but not for many, 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 many years, like the 2000s sometime.
0: Yeah, it's like 25 years.
1: Now, my understanding is that Louise Simonson had plans to do more with this, but we're coming up in the era when she and Chris Claremont were both sort of forced out of Marvel. So this is one of quite a few plot lines that aren't really ever going to go anywhere, like when Destiny says it's important for the future of the survival of freedom force themselves and the mutant race for rusty to be arrested that's just never really followed up on
0: dude destiny always says shit like that i assume that that's how she gets she's like oh are you going to the store you have to pick up ice cream sandwiches it's essential for the survival of the mutant race i have seen it i like
1: this idea it has
0: to be my favorite flavor too if you get strawberry we will perish raven i've seen it
1: raven you have to rub my feet otherwise all of mutant kind will be destroyed
0: so Destiny is always, like, so noble and detached. I love the idea of her just being super, super petty. <laughs> Basically, the equivalent of Max, Twitter's Gene and Scott.
1: That would be wonderful. Gene, they, no,
0: no, it's the Phoenix Force, bidding on stuff on eBay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, this is going to be the status quo of this era of New Mutants. We're going to have the New Mutants off doing their own thing. The ones that have Danny, you know, some of the original characters. Then we're going to have Rusty and Skids just sort of back on Midgard, star, caption, Earth being imprisoned and dealing with some prison stuff and there's some vulture and nitro stuff coming up and it's kind of weird to have that juxtaposition like because it's asgard it's epic and then it's rusty and skids two of the least defined characters in jail
0: those poor kids never
1: had a chance they really didn't at least skids gets to join shield for a while later rusty just joins a cult then dies and so they do get to ship the new mutants who are carrying Danny just in time for it to rocket off into space because the Judgment War, the plotline in X Factor, is starting right now, of all the freaking timing.
0: I don't know why I find it so hilarious when they come back to ship and ship is just like, nope, and flies <laughs> off into space, <laughs> but it cracks me the hell up. I know it's supposed to be, like, disturbing and sad, But it's so slapstick stupid.
1: I just imagine it like three (laughs) stoogesing off into the sky. And just, you know, vanishing into the stars.
0: And the New Mutants just standing there like, God. Damn it, again?
1: So, as all of this is going on, Doctor Strange, which is to say Doctor Dad, although he's not wearing his dumb suit anymore.
0: No, no, he's Doctor Strange in his astral form, because he's got the cape and all of that nonsense. He's only Doctor Dad when he's in a suit and wandering around and saying that his name is Stephen Sanders or
1: whatever. Well, anyway, he's been following the New Mutants astrally, and he's realizing that Mirage is going to break free. You know, this demonic force is going to take over Daniel Moonstar fully. There's not a lot anybody can do about it, and so... He goes...
0: What should I do? What would be the best way to handle this? I will turn to my already just absolutely perfect judgment that has served me so well in this storyline so far. And I'm just going to teleport these kids the hell to Asgard. Woohoo!
1: And so he does. And Brett Blevins gets to draw lots and lots about it because we are back to him. And what is up with Brett Blevins being amazing in this era?
0: I mean, he's been getting better and better over time. And we've talked about that a lot on Inferno and just how fantastic he was there. I think with this arc, I kind of was able to pinpoint what's changed. His art is still very cartoonish, but over time, we've seen it develop from just very exaggerated to incredibly expressive. He's using that cartoonishness much more effectively and in much more character and narrative driven ways. And he's doing it absolutely beautifully. At this point, I would say that he's arguably and justly become the definitive New Mutants artist. And this is actually, I think, going to be his final arc on New Mutants. And it's a really good note for him to go off on. I want to say, too, with regards to Blevins, and I think with regards to a lot of artists, and I think I've talked about this before, too. I'm not sure whether it was here or on the podcast Tumblr, but we tend to see getting to work on a big two shared universe superhero comic as the apex of someone's career and basically judge the quality of their work on anything they've done on that. And I think it's really easy to forget. That most artists and writers, most creative folks continue developing creatively and technically throughout their careers. So you've got Blevins, and I think his early New Mutants art stuff is pretty weak. But I think by the end of his run, he is one of the best artists working on this series. The go-to great example, you know, also is
1: Chuck Austin, who... I was just thinking about him, yeah. Yeah,
0: like, there are bits that are good in his X-Men run, but in general, it's pretty weak. And since then, I mean, he is now doing major work on Steven Universe, which is spectacular and really, really good. You know, you see that throughout comics or God. I think one of my favorite things about binge reading early Daredevil, um, which I did a while ago, is literally basically watching Frank Miller learn to tell stories in real time because you see him go from his first full-length comics work, his first stuff that wasn't an eight-page short, to the fully formed storyteller he eventually becomes and it's not a process that happens instantly it's really seeing a relative novice a very promising relative novice someone who's got a lot of raw talent really develop the skills and the voice that'll eventually define them
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really enjoyable work at this point. And I I never thought I would like him as much as I do, I especially like the way he draws Richter, the way that John Bogdanov drew Richter in that one boom, boom, backup story in that annual and the way that Blevins draws him here. It's just he actually looks like a distinct character. When he first appeared, he didn't particularly.
0: Blevins is great. And so I think there's an idea that either someone is your favorite artist, your least favorite. And for me, Blevins is both. Early Blevins, don't like, not interested. I don't think he's a good fit for the book. By this point, I think he is stellar. And it's really cool watching someone's work develop over time and watching it develop in concert with a title like that.
1: Now, what's going on right now is that just like we're watching Blevins' work, Hela is watching the New Mutants, and she is baffled and confounded and gesticulating around like a madwoman, and it's wonderful because Blevins draws her as this super, like, operatic, flaily, dramatic supervillain, and I love it.
0: "'Tis impossible, but true. The scrying glass doth reveal her presence. What enemy hath the strength... The cunning to transport her here.
1: And as you can probably hear from Jay's voice, like seriously, every other word in her dialogue is italicized. It's wonderful. Yeah,
0: I'm trying to do the emphasis as written, and it's a little ridiculous, but it's great. I mean, it's high Asgard, man.
1: And so she continues her villain explanations from last issue to tell us, the reader, that she now has all of the Valkyries under her control. They're now serving the concept of death, and they've actually been kidnapping the living, so various non-warriors who can help her out. Now they're going after the Einherjar. The Einherjar are those warriors we mentioned before, the fallen valiant warrior dead of Asgard who joined Odin's army, yet now she wants them for herself. So she's trying to get ridiculously powerful as compared to what the status quo is.
0: And normally the Valkyries' job is to collect the Einherjar are Off of the battlefields, bring them to Valhalla, where they take turns feasting and fighting all day, kill each other, come back to life, drink, go back, kill each other again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At infinitum, it's supposed to be great. So the new mutants are in big, big trouble. Rain can't reach Danny. She's just getting flames and pain when she tries to. And Sam, meanwhile, is totally at sea because normally, you know, he's been leading the new mutants, but he and Danny have been co-leading and they've really depended on each other as counterbalances. So They're stuck. Boom Boom, for her part, absolutely hates Asgard. She is completely freaked out by it. It's ugly and scary here, and I hate it.
1: And I actually really like how legitimately freaked out Boom Boom is by this, because she's been through some weird stuff, sure. But she's never been to, you know, another universe like this that she really had no connection to. Like even during Inferno, there was at least an explanation for all that. It was tied to stuff she had some kind of a context for. And with this, it's just a random realm of the gods. She's out of her depth and she's terrified, and so she's lashing out and being a jerk.
0: Well, it's a realm of the gods, and it's one where she has relatively little power. Because I mean, we first met Boom Boom when she was running around with the Beyonder, which is arguably a bigger, scarier situation than this, but she was also attached to the character who was absolutely the biggest, scariest guy in any given room. She was functionally
1: safe. Well, and what's more. Like the way he appeared as just a dude with a jerry curl and a white jacket. He at least had the trappings of a normal person. And Asgard, especially Asgard overlapping with a negative zone, really doesn't.
0: Now, Boom Boom may be out of her depth, but Bobby is absolutely in his element. He loves Asgard. He's super strong here. They treat heroes right. Women love him. He's friends with the Warriors 3. And he could not be happier. And he expresses that happiness by grabbing and throwing a giant rock, which busts through the ground And reveals a cavern full of dwarves, raring for a fight.
1: Oh man, it's like one of those things where you're in a creepy old house and like you accidentally poke through a wall and there's tons of termites in there or something, except it's dwarves.
0: Which would be worse to find in the walls of your creepy old house?
1: I mean, I think dwarves are pretty awesome. I'd love to hang out with them, so I'd say I'd prefer them.
0: They'd be louder though, like you'd hear them fighting and forging at night.
1: That's what Bilbo Baggins hates.
0: Bilbo Baggins hates a lot of things, man.
1: And yeah, so Boom Boom continues freaking out because dwarves are gross and she hates this. And so she throws a bomb, thus making the situation even worse. And there's a big fight because comics.
0: In the midst of the fight, the dwarves mention that they work for the master forger, Etri. This is Sam's bro, and Sam decides that the thing for the new mutants to do is to stop fighting, let themselves get captured. And once Etri realizes it's Sam, clearly he will let them go. It'll be fine. It is not
1: fine. And they're thrown in jail, and the dwarves are like, yeah, maybe we'll tell Atri about this. And so they start trying to break out, and it really doesn't work out so well.
0: Meanwhile, the other new mutants are questioning Sam's leadership.
1: And he replies, Just because you don't like my plan, Bobby, don't mean I ain't got one. Look, we don't need to insult the dwarves by breaking out of their cage. There are power here on Asgard. We don't want them for enemies. We're up against something too big for us to handle alone, Bobby. We're gonna need all the allies we can get.
0: Sam is a clever dude and a very good leader, even if he is entirely non-confident in his abilities.
1: Boom Boom is totally not convinced even after Sam's speechifying, however.
0: I get us free, and Sam says we have to be captured. And no matter what I do, things don't get any better. They just get worse and worse. I'm an ordinary Earth kid. I'm good at video games, not other dimensions. Before X-Factor found me, I was doing okay. I had my time bombs, I knew what was what. I could take care of myself. Then X-Factor saves me. Yes, yeah, saves me, right. And I join up with you guys, and suddenly it's Disaster City.
1: And so Warlock starts trying to cheer her up and to cheer Rain up, who's still messed up about Danny. And to do so, he starts juggling the various bits of rock and chain around the cell that they're in, explaining that this was a game on his home planet? Like Yeah, what?
0: the technarchy.
1: Patricide and occasional juggling. I mean, it's a little thematically dissonant with what we've seen of the Technarch homeworld, certainly. Maybe
0: they juggle like pieces of the dead. Maybe it's a fighting technique. And so, it, no, it just doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I assume he just likes juggling. I don't know why he would even say that.
1: It's a great line. I love it when continuity just gets weird like that. And so Boom Boom is starting to cheer up, and so she throws a time bomb into the mix of things Warlock is juggling, thus freaking everybody out.
0: It's a dud, and she is horribly insulted at the thought that they think she would even consider throwing a live time bomb at her friends, despite the fact that she does that all the fucking
1: time. But at the same time, I have a lot of sympathy for her here, because really, like... She's lonely. She's scared. She really doesn't know most of the people here very well. And so she was just trying to be one of the gang. She was just trying to play. And unfortunately, she's not very good at knowing what's appropriate and what's not really in any situation.
0: She really isn't. Now, fortunately for her and fortunately for the team dynamic, uh, this is when Etri comes in overjoyed to see Sam again and furious that they've been imprisoned. It's time for a feast, and hangouts, and catching up, and uh, then evil Valkyries attack, and everyone's fucked.
1: Now, the dwarves, unlike uh, in many fantasy stories, the dwarves of Nidavalyr aren't really warriors. Like, they're artisans, they're smiths, they forge things. But you know what? Etri's like, okay, things are super not okay right now. It's time for some excellent speechifying. Because if this is the day I die, I want to say some stuff.
0: And I feel like this is, you know, such a magma, heavy metal style speech. We're going to need a guitar riff for this, I think.
1: Absolutely. And so, to battle, sons of Nidavellir, shall a spindly daughter of Midgard prove braver than the dwarfs? Though we die this day, let the mead halls ring with songs of the courage of the dwarfs. Hell yeah. They really should hang out with Magma. They're both good at though-I-die-this-day speeches. I love it.
0: Meanwhile, Hela has sent Mirage to capture the new mutants. She says, if Danny's will is preventing your body from slaying them, here's some magic powder. You can just use it to freeze them and capture them. And she does, freezing the new mutants and dwarfs in place and capturing them again dumping them in the prisons of Valhalla, where they have a long argument while basically frozen in the positions they were captured in, which is kind of hilarious. It's
1: actually legitimately funny. Like, this is an area where Simonson and Blevins clearly wanted humor to work a certain way, and they totally land it. It's great.
0: Man, I really love Boom Boom in this arc because we get a scene that I feel like is kind of peak her, and especially peak her with regards to team dynamic. She realizes that she can still make time bombs while she's frozen, and she does, and she drops through the floor. And determines that the paralysis only lasts as long as they're in the room they were imprisoned in, which means that she can get out if she wants to. And she gives an entire speech about how she should just go off on her own and she's better off by herself and she knows better and forget the team and forget the new mutants. And she does this while she's piling stuff up so she can blow out the floor under them and rescue all of them. And it's a lovely moment. It's a moment that reminds me a lot of her whole thing in the right headquarters in X Factor when she's crawling around sort of grumpily playing hero.
1: Right. And that's when she ends up uh, saving, among other people, Richter. And I think a lot of the loyalty Richter displays toward her in this storyline is from exactly that.
0: Yeah, Richter is very soundly Team Boom Boom throughout this. And some of it is that he clearly has a crush on her, but more is that he's kind of the only person who's taken the time to try to understand her. And we're going to see that throughout this arc and the part we're talking about today and more. But he's a really good dude and he is a really good friend to her.
1: So she does end up uh, saving the rest of the new mutants by uh, bombing them out of this room as well. Now, they are, of course, confronted by guards because Boom Boom's mutant powers are not subtle. And they fight. And I kind of love the way the battle cry works here as Boom Boom says,
0: Oh, no, you know, guys.
1: And Sunspot replies all together now. And everyone simultaneously says, I I really hate hate this. So they fight these guards and they win, and so now they disguise themselves using presumably whatever Asgardian clothing was around in the storeroom.
0: It's nice that the Asgardians just happen to have those domino masks sitting around.
1: What I really enjoy is that Cannonball ends up in basically a Robin Hood outfit, and I was thinking about this, like, okay, this is Norse mythology, I know they have the Shakespearean voices, but why would a Robin Hood outfit be here? And then I remembered, canonically, officially, Fandral the Dashing of the Warriors 3 was one of Robin Hood's merry men. It's in a comic. That explains his beard. It does, right? And you know, the fact that he otherwise doesn't seem as Guardian at all, but I still love Fandral, because he's dashing.
0: Yeah, I mean, he can do whatever he wants, as far as I'm concerned. Although I would say that arguably um, Volstag is the merrier of them.
1: He totally is, yeah. Although originally he was uh, Falstaff. He was basically just Falstaff straight out of Shakespeare.
0: Falstaff is also fairly merry, at least up until Henry V.
1: <laughs> Nobody's merry in Henry V.
0: Nobody is merry in Henry V. <laughs>
1: So another person they find, in addition to uh, not finding Fandral, I guess, sometimes our segues work and sometimes they don't. Another is,
0: person they find, in addition to their
1: disguises, is Rimhari, the Wolf Prince. Remember that Silver Wolf Prince guy that Rain was in love with? He's here. He was captured as a tracker by Hella's forces, and so he joins up with them and they team up and head on out.
0: Unfortunately, Hella's plan is continuing apace. She is trying to link Valhalla directly to Hell instead of to Asgard, so she can just pull directly on the dead from it and sam considers fighting her but he decides that the more judicious thing to do is going to be to retreat they don't have a lot of their team they don't have a good sense of the situation the team that they do have isn't used to fighting together he's not used to leading solo and he remembers that the last time they thought well we've beat worse odds we might as well dive in head first doug ramsey got killed so he decides to retreat they're going to find support they're going to call in the big guns they're going to try to find a way to warn the Aesir.
1: So they head out through the continually closing portal as Hela's spell continues, and for once they don't just barely make it, only a few of them do. Warlock Boom Boom and Haram do make it out, they do escape this realm, but Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfspin, and Richter fall back down, they are still stuck.
0: And Sunspot decides, fuck it. It's up to us, we're gonna free the dwarves, we're gonna fight Hella. we're gonna be the big damn heroes.
1: And his wish for a fight is met pretty quickly because they turn around and suddenly they're confronted by a flaming Valkyrie who we've actually seen before. This is a flaming Valkyrie-possessed version of Mist, the Valkyrie that Danny first met when she got Brightwind back in the day.
0: If you are so eager to go into hell, mortal, then I personally will be most pleased to escort you there.
1: Oh man, that was super creepy. And so, Thank you. yeah, that's the first half of the New Mutants and Asgard story. And there's not really a better breakpoint than this because this is at least when the party gets split. So we'll just. Call it here and resume in a, an upcoming episode not too far away.
0: Are you kidding? That's a great breakpoint. That's like the episode end high tension cliffhanger moment.
1: <laughs> I feel like we should have a next time on New Mutants here with clips from the episode that we haven't recorded yet.
0: Previously on New Mutants. Test pattern. <laughs> no.
1: Uh, so, yes, it's a fun story. It does drag a little long. I mean, overall, I think the reputation of the story is not so hot. And this is, in fact, right before they brought in Rob Liefeld to try to pick up sales of the book. But, you know, so far in this first half of the story, I really enjoy it.
0: I love this story. I love seeing the new team try to work out their dynamics. I love the epic Asgard stuff. I mean, I think this is a story that is going to be a lot more appealing to you if you're a Thor fan and specifically if you're a fan of Walt Simonson's Thor, because I mean, there's a lot of homage to that. There's a lot of that feel in it. There are a lot of familiar and marvelous and welcome elements from it that are especially going to come in in the second half. And I like that stuff. I like the new mutants and that stuff. I like the mix of comfort with that element and just wildly out of their depth. I think it's a great character moment for two of my favorite and largely underserved characters, Boom Boom and Richter. And again, I think it is Blevins at his absolute finest. It is a great, great last chapter for his run on the book.
1: So we'll come back to the new Mutants in Asgard soon. But in the meantime, you've got questions. Dan Mulcarran asks on Tumblr, You recently called Gateway, who uses the trappings of his own culture, problematic. White characters who use trappings and practices of other cultures, for instance, Iron Fist, are also problematic. How should characters with overt cultural trappings be handled?
0: In general, it's less an issue of presence or absence of cultural trappings than of how they're used and by whom. You've got to be sensitive to not only you know, presence or absence, but also perspective and breadth of representation. The short version of this is be careful, be conscious, be mindful. Don't reduce characters who don't represent your demographic or the cultural majority that you're writing from to a limited Eurocentric view of their cultural trappings. And don't assign overt cultural trappings belonging to marginalized or colonized peoples to characters who are among the groups that colonized or marginalized them. Problems with representation don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a real world cultural context, which it's important to be aware of and sensitive to. And they happen In a fictional context that it's important to be aware of and sensitive to, Iron Fist, for example, is part of a very, very long tradition of making white European or European-American characters the savior of non-white groups, basically fetishizing a culture and its trappings and, again, a very sort of reductive, fantasy-oriented view of that while not representing the actual people at all. Also, the reduction of a large range of cultures and ideas to, again, a very simplified down fetishized version that then is handed to a white dude. That's ridiculous. Gateway is sort of the other extreme. He is a character who, while the cultural trappings he's attached to are from his own culture, he's basically nothing but those trappings. Really, he doesn't have agency or motivation beyond that. He's basically the X-Men's party bus. He is this mystical conduit. He doesn't get to be a person in ways that other characters around him are. And I think that's a really critical distinction. And also something of which writers and readers are much, much more aware now than they used to. So intention matters a lot. I don't think it's necessarily always intuitive. I think willingness as an author to not only hear, but to seek out criticism, to learn, especially if you're going in your writing from a more central position and you're writing cast members who are part of or using elements from colonized groups or anything like that. I will say James Leisk has written a lot of really great stuff, including one piece for us specifically on Mirage, on representations of indigenous cultures and peoples. I'll link in the as mentioned both to his article on our site and to his stuff at Comics Alliance and also to some more general resources on, you know, writing the other, on writing with cultural sensitivity and on the importance of not only representation, but mindful representation in fiction. Uh, We are in it, asks on Tumblr. Just recently, Miles mentioned that Uncanny X-Men 251 was the last issue in the box of comics his dad gave him. I'd love to know more about that collection. Were there any substantial gaps in the X-Men run? What were the other titles? Is this where Miles' love of Thor comes from? In what ways did that particular collection shape your expectations for comics?
1: Okay, so we've supplemented uh, that collection with, you know, comics we've bought ourselves, so I'm not sure exactly where those runs end. But if I recall, they started with Uncanny X-Men number 190, the Kulan Gath story, that was a very strange place to jump in, and ends with roughly Uncanny X-Men 251, New Mutants 81, X-Factor 47, Wolverine 19, and Excalibur 16. So all the very end of 1989. Um, there weren't really any gaps in there, although there was also a copy of Uncanny X-Men number 186, Life Death, even though it was before the Uninterrupted run, but I can't blame my father for picking that up. I mean, it's Barry Windsor Smith, it's a phenomenal issue. And so, yeah, it was, you know, runs from number one of all the non-X-Men books. And an X-Men book starting at a strange place, which really had me diving into the deep end, there weren't things like Secret Wars 1 and 2, so when the books crossed over with stuff like that, I just had to sort of fill in the gaps. And honestly, I'm kind of glad I got a chance to do that, because I think so much of looking back on these books, so much of, you know, remembering what it's like to be a comic reader when you're just reading the comics rather than doing a podcast about them, is remembering that you're going to miss stuff. There are going to be things that you can't necessarily get a hold of. And especially in the pre-internet days, that meant you had to just figure stuff out on your own or just guess. Think about, you know, who the Beyonder probably was, since you don't really have a lot of information on that.
0: Yeah, I remember um, going through that collection and then the one we put together later. There was a very specific gap in the only Onslaught tie-in. The only Onslaught arc issue that we had at all were the Excalibur tie-ins.
1: Oh, right. And so we're like, OK, we don't really know what's going on, but here's a tiny corner of it.
0: And oh, this was where they introduced the Xavier protocols, actually, was mm-hmm. in those issues. So we had that, but absolutely no context for it.
1: Right. Now, it wasn't just X stuff, although that was most of it. There was also the full run of Walter Simonson's Thor. And yeah, that is absolutely where my love of Thor comes from. I mean, that was the best possible place to jump into Thor. And honestly, I mean, I've read modern Thor. I've read that. I haven't read a whole lot of other stuff like the Annihilus stuff that we were talking about here. I haven't. And I feel okay about that because I feel like I've read some of the best stuff. And, you know, later on, there were also a bunch of X miniseries, most of the ones we've covered, and, you know, and trade paperbacks like Longshot. Now, my father was into a lot of other stuff, but that's all the room the long box had. So later on, he gave me a bunch of Tomb of Dracula, which is awesome. Nexus, Elf Quest, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and a Fantastic Four run I should probably actually read one day. But uh, to answer your question about how this influenced what my expectations for comics are, I think it absolutely did. I mean, the 80s are my favorite era, and I think part of that is because it's what I cut my teeth on. Like, I was buying my own stuff in the 90s, but simultaneously I was reading this giant, giant, years-long, uninterrupted run from the 80s. So there I got to see lots of deep character work, long game foreshadowing and plotting, continuity that was actually really expertly connected. So that's kind of what I seek these days. And when those things aren't present, I think I find that kind of disappointing. So, you know, it's kind of like the people say with Doctor Who, you never forget your first doctor. Like the first actor who's the doctor when you start watching becomes yours. It was absolutely that way for me in terms of eras of X-Men.
0: So Peter Davison on the Outback.
1: (laughs) Pretty much, yes.
0: Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with thanks from a number of fictional entities and concepts. I believe that, at least initially, I am turning things over to Hela, the goddess of death.
1: Lord Odin doth remain foolishly ignorant of the schemes of Hela, and the Einhariar swell the ranks of mine army of the dead day by day. Yet two remain untamed. Ben McKenzie—no, n- not not the one from Gotham— and Daniel Tauber— no matter, mine of Valkyries shall set the realms ablaze, and even Mackenzie and Tauber shall soon whisper the name Hella through lips contorted in pain and submission. I mean, we have a ship made out of dead people's fingernails. That's awesome. Come on, come on, no spirit nor mortal can resist that. And I'll turn it over from here to the angry Claremontian narrator.
0: You buried yourself in your study of history, Joe Streckert ignoring the threats of the present and the rise of Peter Beauvert, Now you must draw on all the lessons of the past and hope that they will be enough to save the future. And with that... Jane Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast.
1: New episodes of Jane Miles' Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out
0: explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and much, much more.
1: This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
0: Next week, X-Factor heads across the galaxy
1: for a cosmic snobs versus slobs battle as we begin the Judgment War.